You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketing director for Studio 420. If you're following cannabis news in New York, you've probably heard of Brad Racino. He's the editor of New York Cannabis Insider. It's the go-to publication to learn what's happening in New York. With a background as an investigative reporter, he covers everything and everyone that has to do with the launch of the industry in New York. Brad is an early mover in the state and has his finger on the pulse. Not only is he reporting on the state's progress, but he's also leading the charge by organizing informational and networking meetups for social equity entrepreneurs. Let's meet Brad for some quick takes on what's happening in New York. Hello. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm good. So you're up in Syracuse? Yep. Yeah, I grew up in Rochester area. Oh, okay. I actually grew up in Orange County. Um, and Middletown, New York, and then moved to California for 10 years. And my wife and I came back last year. So her family's up here. So she won the battle of which family do we get closer to? Yeah, exactly. I think I, uh, I've, I've driven past there multiple times. I don't go up that way any, uh, anymore, but um, it's been a long time, but my family's not there anymore. Um, actually they are, but <laughs> I don't go up there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here we go. I, I saw that you were uh, in New York uh, having the event at, uh, at the tavern the other day. Um, mm -hmm. I, I kind of wanted to stop by. Is that something you're doing on a regular basis? We're debating it now because the turnout was way more than we expected. And it seems like there's a demand for this kind of thing. So we're talking internally about how we can make it more often that we can go down there because we're planning on Next year, three full con, three full day conferences, a couple meetups like that, and then a couple of virtual things. Um, but we're tossing around the idea of maybe we do a New York City meetup once every six weeks or so, because um, the market's going to be moving in major ways. So there's going to be a demand. So I don't know yet, but that's the plan. Right. Okay. Well, I'll definitely going to stop by uh, at one point. I'll say hi if you're there. Yeah. So, uh, well, anyway, let's just start with. Um, you know, how, how did you get into cannabis, um, your newspaper, and you were like the first one who grabbed that spot, claimed your stake, set yourself up, and, you know, to me, you seem like the go-to person, probably the most knowledgeable person um, in New York cannabis. Um, so just wondering how you got to that path since you're coming from California. and mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um. Well, it was a weird route. So I came back from California in April of last year. I had been um, the senior investigative reporter and an assistant director for a nonprofit investigative newsroom in San Diego. And when I moved back here, I kind of looked around the landscape and tried to find something similar. And it just doesn't exist outside of New York City. There's, you know, in New York City, there's a bunch of similar nonprofits, ProPublica and others. But being this far north, there's really nothing in central New York. And um, I was asking uh, local journalists just to meet up with me, not for a job or anything, but just because I missed talking about journalism and investigative reporting. And one of the people that I ended up talking to happened to be a higher up at a at the newsroom here at Syracuse at Syracuse.com. And when we were talking after a while, he said, um, you know, I think you might be a perfect uh, person to lead this initiative that we're thinking of doing. And he explained it more. 
And apparently there was um, a precedent because the same company that owns Syracuse.com also owns NJ.com. And they had started New Jersey Cannabis Insider about four years ago. And so they had this template and it was the same thing of, you know, now that New York's coming online, why don't we do this here in New York? And I told them at the time, listen, I know nothing about cannabis. I mean, I have smoked it and, and taken edibles in my life, but like, as far as reporting on it, I don't know anything. And um, it was like the one thing I never covered when I was out in San Diego. I just took it for granted having lived there for so long where it was legal that it was just, you know, it was everywhere. And it wasn't something I really thought of as like an industry that would be really interesting to cover. I knew nothing about it. And so when I took this job and started looking into it, I was like, this is fascinating. And it also checks all of the boxes that I love as a reporter, which is, you know, politics and holding government officials accountable and looking out for the little guy and, you know, money and influence and medical and like research and all of that is so it's just a giant playground for me as a reporter to be like, I can find something interesting anywhere I look in this industry. Um, but having then looked around at the actual, you know, news coverage of cannabis around the country, I was really surprised to see that there wasn't really any, there weren't many solid fact-based, just down the middle reporting outlets. A lot of them seemed to be, you know, kind of cheerleaders for the industry or, you know, kind of bloggers who were very admittedly taking stuff for free to cover. And it just, it seemed like it was an, it was a very nascent journalistic enterprise. And I thought, hey, why don't we just do this the right way, apply normal journalistic standards, be known for our transparency, some investigative reporting, bringing data into the mix. So I read that the OCM recently moved the goalpost on, on new applications. This is not for a card, right? This is for just regular applications. When, right. And what's the update on that? Well, if you talk to OCM, they'll say that they never move the timeline, that everything is as they always planned it. Um, that's not true. They, When we started this out, we talked to Tremaine Wright last year, um, who said they would have an entire cannabis ecosystem up in place within 18 months of the Cannabis Control Board forming. Um, so once we learned that these uh, that she had told one of our reporters at NECAN in Albany that um, they were expecting to have the applications in like the summer of next year that marked a significant shift in what was being expected. Like we were expecting that the ecosystem would be up and running by then. Um, but I mean, to be fair, also 18 months is an extremely aggressive timeline to get entire industry up and running. Uh, but that's, that's the newest, most updated information we have is expect full regulations, at least proposed, maybe not adopted, but proposed by the end of this year and then applications to open second quarter of next year for all the other license types. They, they were claiming by Christmas, November, harvest, we were gonna all be open. So, so basically it just stands where it is. Next, next year, we're going to be looking at um, applications opening up for people who are not in the card, okay. Oh yeah, and I also, I also read somewhere that uh, there's talk about pre-qualification processes to speed, speed the uh, application process up, which makes a lot of sense, uh, given all the paperwork on both sides that have to be submitted and reviewed. Yeah, so that is an idea that's proposed uh, by the New York Cannabis Growers and Processors Association, which is now CANI, this uh, Cannabis Association of New York. And their main lobbyist, Joe Rossi, um, 
they are suggesting that and there is a precedent apparently for that and i think michigan uh, but we have not heard any word from the ocm as to whether that actually will be the case but it's something that they're pushing very hard for do you think that it seems ridiculous that the state is is requiring uh felons who apply also have had to have experience in business and a successful business at that uh, it, it's, it's an oxymoron. I mean, what do you, how is that shaping up? How, what kind of uh, applicants are you seeing and meeting? I see you have something through uh, New York Cannabis Insider where you're doing uh, profiles of people who have been accepted, I believe, in the application process. Sarah. Well, not not accepted. They're just applying. There's no accepting yet. Um, oh, okay. No, still open for the application. So they'll they'll close the window after 30 days and then start grading. I think and scoring. Because it just uh, went. Oh, because it just went up on August 25th, right? The applications. Oh, so September 25th is when they start. Um, when they close the window and then they should start grading and scoring the applications and then letting the some people know whether they've made it to the second round they're doing this in two rounds so like they're they're just i think taking like a cursory glance at all the applications saying okay these meet the criteria these obviously do not and then letting those people who do meet the criteria know that so that they can now they can then submit what the additional documentation they need to like i think security plans and like financial statements and things like that um but as to your question uh, whether or not it's ridiculous um i'm i'm not gonna weigh in on that just to maintain my journalistic independence, um, but I have met many people who do qualify for that, and I think that the OCM has said that uh, you know they know that this is a relatively strict bar or you know a high bar to, to do, but they want to make sure that whoever they actually grant these licenses to will be successful or at least has a good chance of being successful. So that's why they're looking at business interests. I'm not too sure why they didn't expand it a little bit to be like, hey, if you managed a company but weren't an owner or something like that, but. I, I understand because we, the last thing we want are people failing. So, so the applicants that you've seen coming through, who are you seeing? Like just a, on a general, what are their situations or, you know, what are their past experiences? Is there, I don't know, just a couple samples of who's. Yeah. Yes. So, so one of the guys I met for uh, one of the earliest applicants I met, his name is TJ Lewis. He's here right in the Syracuse area. He was arrested on federal charges and under state law um, for growing, cultivating years and years ago. He went to prison for, I think, six months. Um, and But during that time, he had a hydroponics store that just sold seed and fertilizer and stuff. And he was arrested. Luckily for him, they didn't seize his store. But when he came back, he kept running it. So he's had that business for nine years. And he knows everything about growing. Um, and so his his is to get into the space. Um, there was another person we had in our panel in New York City, <clears throat> Jeremy Rivera, who was a gang member who sold weed for a very long time, but he's got um, his own uh, construction company now. He's been out of prison for four years, um, and he really wants to get in, a, a license so that he can actually give back to his community down in, I think he's down in Queens. Um, he's got a really good plan for that. There's others who have been in the space for a while. Um, a lot of them are legacy operators, but uh, they've done they've managed to do things on the side despite their convictions. Um, you know, they've they've opened up the one guy. Um, I'm trying to I forget his name, but he runs a company called Con Conbody. Um, oh yes, I've heard of him. Yeah, As, I think his name is Marte. Yep, Marte. that's it. 
Yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of him. I thought that was a great story. Yeah, and he's really giving back too. Yes. Yeah, and so, there, but then there's some people you meet. Like I was at this event last uh, after New York City. It was still down in New York City. It was a different event. Um, met an older woman who was arrested like a very long time ago. Um, she basically uh, turned to selling drugs when she lost like a bunch of stuff in her personal life. How about people upstate in some like random town, you know, small towns? I'm sure there are. I haven't met any yet. Um, upstate is a lot more, you know, growers um, and it's kind of the ag, the ag part of things. I think a lot of the retail is going to be down in, down in the city and the city area. Um, but I haven't really ventured out beyond, you know, the Syracuse area. There's some in Buffalo I know of, um, but like the smaller towns, especially in Western New York, I don't really know what's going on there, but we are planning to actually do a day trip late September to um, the city of Jamestown because they are being really progressive about their approach to accepting cannabis um, in their city. And they've already taken a number of steps to like make that happen. So we're going to go out there and kind of get a lay of the land and document kind of what it looks like from a, a small town's angle of like, what does it look like to embrace an entirely new industry and what are they doing right now? Right, right. I, I didn't even think about that, like the different cities all around. Um, I think we have a pretty good turnout for towns who opted in. Is that right? I don't remember the exact breakdown, but I, I think there's a lot that opted out. I think I think it was like 60, 40, 60 opted out, 40 in. But don't hold me to that because I haven't looked at those numbers in a long time. But then you have places like Long Island where almost the entire place opted out. There's like four spots that opted in. Um, but, the, you know, the smaller communities, especially in upstate New York, that kind of have that deep-seated fear of drugs or whatever this is going to do i mean they've they kind of voted for this or went with this along the lines that you would expect within those communities that you know just don't want to see this kind of thing in their neighborhood right right that makes sense I, i'm trying to imagine how that would play out you know one horse town except they could probably use the revenue as far as like the accelerators and um incubators and things like that do you think we have a strong uh, support system are, are those shaping up those accelerator and uh incubator programs that's a great question and honestly as far as i know there's not really much anything yet i think that there's been a lot of promises by the ocm and the, the cannabis control board that these things will be in place by the time these applicants need them but honestly a lot of them need it now um, a lot of these people don't know how to do a lot of this stuff in the business planning and so those resources are really few and far between what we're seeing is a lot of community advocacy groups popping up, nonprofits that are transitioning to, to support um, these people and to help them as much as they can. There's a lot of law firms that are doing pro bono work. There's a consortium of cannabis accountants in the state that's come together under a nonprofit to help them. Um, so it's, it's interesting. It's like the, the, the community is filling in the gaps that the, the government is not doing yet. But that said, uh, the OCM may have a plan. They may roll out something soon. We just haven't heard much about it at all. That's probably why you're getting so many people at these events, because if you haven't opened a business before, you really don't know what the steps are. You just need the, that basic understanding for sure. It's, it's really important. Um, you can't just throw people out there and expect them to know what to do. So I hope that really works out. Um, as far as DASNY, the group that's uh, responsible for finding retail locations and building them out. I, I, I remember reading somewhere that a lot of uh, card applicants were not happy that they weren't going to have any sort of creative control. Is that shaking out differently or are people happy? 
okay with that? There's there's still not much information. Um, the DASNY just today had a board meeting where they ruled that they would participate in that social equity fund. It, I think it was kind of like a box checking exercise, but it was a pretty important, pretty important like legislative step to get that done. But as far as we know, like there's still no um, <clears throat> locations that have been secured by DASNY. I know they're looking at a lot of them, but they haven't announced any, even getting one location secured. Then there's questions about the fund itself, the $200 million fund and where that money's coming from and whether they've raised anything to date. I, I don't believe they have. Um, but then when it comes to like the actual retail locations, there was a lot of confusion as to whether or not uh, the DASNY OCM would allow applicants to use their own space if they already had it or if they had to go into a DASNY space. And that took like a month of us reporting and hounding the OCM to answer this and hounding DASNY where they finally said, no, you have to use a DASNY space. So that has been confusing for these card applicants, but also I think a little bit of a letdown because a lot of them, like the guy I mentioned here in Syracuse, who's had the hydroponics store for nine years, he wants to stay there. He'd love to stay there, um, hey. but now I go to a new spot. So it's, <clears throat> you know, there's not, a, I think that there's some people who are grateful that even this opportunity even exists and that the state is doing this for them and hopefully we'll have all these resources in place by the time they need them but there's definitely a lot of anger and annoyance at the lack of information the lack of clarity lack of transparency around this process um and a lot of people are saying if you don't know the answer just say we don't know the answer yet it's, it's better than acting like you know something and not letting us know so that's kind of where we've tried to fit in at New York Cannabis Insiders, trying to at least get those answers for people so that there's some clarity on this process. Yeah, no, it's very important because like you said, I mean, this the, the guy with the hydroponics store, they, they need to talk to their landlords. And yeah, there's, there's so much going on. And then I also heard that just because you put in an application for a specific location, Say, for instance, you're Manhattan, you want to have your location in Manhattan, you might get it in Queens or you might get it in Kingston, uh, upstate New York. So, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who say, like, listen, I'm going to you have to rank your five locations. You have to put your primary and then your four backup. But they're saying, like, if I don't get this first one, I'm not going to do this. Like, there's no I can't I have a family or like I can't travel four hours every day to do this or this, um, which, you know, it is what it is. But it just kind of sucks for some people because it's. $2,000 to just yep. apply for this thing. And for some people, that's nothing. For other people, they've got to beg, borrow, and steal from family to even apply for this. So, but it is, yeah, it is what it is. I think it's imperfect. The The state acknowledges that, um, but it's definitely going to be weird to see how this rolls out and how people... Why are they even doing that? I, it just makes no sense. If somebody says, I want to be in Manhattan, why not give them a license in Manhattan? Yeah. So um, how are the farmers doing? Like, are there, is there, is there, is it like a seamless transition? I, I think it's the farmers who were already growing hemp and extracting. So I actually talked to a farmer yesterday morning who was just starting to harvest um, his first round of crops. He was in the hemp program and then transitioned over to THC. Um, but the big concern is, a, you know, these, a lot of these hemp farmers, some of them definitely grew you know, THC on the side, but then there's others who never did. And so it's a very different beast from what I'm told um, and into how to cultivate THC compared to hemp. But there's also like, they had to get these seeds from out of state to start this process. And the guy I talked to yesterday was like, yeah, once I harvest, we're going to see, were those seeds what, what I was told they were? Like, we have no idea. And is it going to pass laboratory testing? Um, 
Is it is there gonna be heavy metals in the soil that we don't know about? Are there gonna be all these things? And that's the million dollar question is, I don't doubt that all these cultivators will be able to harvest like a crop, but how much of it is gonna pass lab testing? And is that going to be enough to satisfy the need for all of these locations that are going to open up? Or is the OCM gonna to have to supplement somehow maybe from medical, um, from the medical operators to supply that, which then opens up a whole other can of worms about letting medical in when they said they were not going to for a while to let the card applicants get started. So it's- Right, right. And then the other question is, if they're harvesting now, but they don't have stores open, how long, you know, what, how is, you know, sure they can extract and maybe manufacture some products. They have time to do that, but how they're going to, they're going to lose their crops. It could be a case like that because the card uh, applicants haven't even been approved and, and DASNY hasn't even secured location. So are we expecting them to open up by the end of the year and regular applicants next crisp, you know, next uh, fall? Is that how they're expecting it? I think happen? they are hoping for at least one card dispensary to open by the end of this year. That, that's their milestone. That's their goal is to at least say they've opened a retail dispensary by the end of 2022. Um, but as far as like, yeah, the cultivators, not, not only you said, you know, they could just process it, but that's also another thing is they've approved 15 process, conditional processor licenses, but those people have to get up and running. Um, some of them actually are in existence already, but others are new. And so, you know, do they have the equipment to, to do this? Do they need to order it? There's also the whole supply chain problem of like, things are backed up around the world. So if you need this special piece of equipment, it might not get there for nine months. What does that do? So this is like this really complicated matrix to see how does this all fit together? And it's a funnel, right? And if those pieces aren't all there to get to retail, something, something bad's gonna happen. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's tricky. It's going to be really tricky. Um, are you are you meeting any entrepreneurs in the CPG product uh, area, infused manufacturing licenses? I'm just curious what kind of entrepreneurs are coming through. Are there like a lot of beverages or? Yeah, there's been actually a lot of talk of beverages recently. And um, I think that's one of the more interesting products that we'll see in New York because no one's used to it. I mean, medical doesn't sell it here. Um, and you, and legacy isn't manufacturing beverages for people. So that's that's definitely, um, I think, what a lot of people are excited about when it comes to that niche product space. And there are a couple of people I've talked to who are getting into that space um, or have been in it in other states and are planning to bring it here. Um, but as far as like other infused kind of uh, products, I haven't heard that much um, yet. Nothing particular about like, oh, this new product is coming or here's how it, how it's going for us. The question is, is how how many people from out of state who are already manufacturing and selling in other states already, do you see them like banging down the doors? Yeah, there's quite a bit of interest from um, from out of state operators. Uh, there's a lot of people who are fleeing California because that market has crashed. And so they're they're coming right to New York to start fresh. There's people out of Oregon and Washington, Colorado that are coming here. Um, and there's it's funny because there's, there's some people who are very open about it. And then there's others who are like, trying to cover this up as best as possible and trying to like operate in the shadows of, you know, shell companies and this and that to get into the New York market without letting it be known that they are out of state operators. Um, so it's, it's fun to watch that and try and pick out who's who and what's, what's going on there. But uh, yeah, that's. I wonder why wouldn't they want people to well, know? Well, the, the whole thing is 
the, when the OCM and CCB started up this, you know, their, their agencies and started talking about what this market's going to look like, the whole rallying cry was New York first. This is a market that we're creating for New Yorkers, by New Yorkers. You know, everything's got to be grown, cultivated, wow. processed within New York. And so just the idea of like, especially large MSOs or others coming from out of state to dominate New York just doesn't sit well with a lot of people um, in the state. It's just that New York pride of, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also they probably don't want the OCM or whoever's looking over the applications to get a hint of where they're coming from and sway their decision probably, yeah. Um, and then what about the taxes? I mean, that's that's what's taking California, not the only thing taking California down, but the other states. Um, I know they're talking about a potency tax um, on the THC content. And then the governor, I know uh, Governor Hochul's also been talking about um, eliminating state taxes to offset the 280E federal taxes. Um, but some people think that's not such a great idea. And also I read somewhere, all this I'm reading off of your paper, uh, people might shop in the neighboring states because they have friendlier tax laws, like our tax laws might be so high, it'll bump up the, the retail price. So I'm just curious what you're hearing on the tax it's, front. It's it's interesting because it, like I, you know, there's a lot of things that I know pretty well and there's others that I just look at and I'm like, I am not going to ever be an expert in this. And when it comes to taxes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Okay. What am I talking but also, about? Yeah, like, the people who we've talked to are divided on this. And those are like, even people within like the accounting world, like they're, they're on both sides. So some say this tax, this potency tax is ridiculous. It'll never work. It'll lead to lab shopping. It'll lead to all these different things. And others are saying, no, this is a great idea. Look at these projections and look at what we're basing this on. I will never feel expert enough to weigh in on anything like that, but um, I can say that it it does seem just from a normal viewpoint of just a, a regular person that these are going to be pretty high taxes, and they're already taxing medical, which is really strange. Um, like medical is taxed pretty high, and so like it just seems like New York is very hungry for this tax revenue. And just needs to be very careful not to shoot itself in the foot before it even gets going um, to kind of stymie the market. And then, as you pointed out, the 280E thing is a big deal. I mean, they did pass the bill that decouples that so that New York State, um, you're not having to, you, you get that break, but the federal 280E is still in, in effect. And that's that's a big chunk of change for small businesses to kind of have to deal with, um, especially in their first couple of years when like, you're not even normal businesses. You're not even expected to turn a profit in year one or even year two. And like their, their budgets are going to be pretty limited. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do and how it works out. Right, right. And then the big question, the big, big question is, and I'm sure you see this when you come in the city, and I don't know if it's like this everywhere else upstate, but all the illegal operators everywhere it's insane. Yeah, every time I come down there, it seems like there's ten times more. Um... A tent, really, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. At every subway stop, there's a you know pop up car table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's again like everyone wants their retail to be in New York City, and I just think like you're gonna always have to put up with that. There's no way the state or the city is ever gonna be able to tamp down on all those operators ever. Like. You would have to spend so much money and manpower to identify these people, but then it's just a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, they'll just pop up somewhere else. So it's like, will that always be there? And and seems like yeah. And then like, okay, what does that mean for retail hopefuls? You know, who are going the license route? Like, 
should they really be paying so much attention to New York City? Maybe, maybe it even with the amount of tourism and everything, like maybe it doesn't even matter. Maybe even if you have a hundred, you know, 10 to one illegal operators versus one legal, maybe those legal are still making enough money to be fine and happy. I have no idea. But to your point, yeah, every time I go down there, it's like every block of every part of the city, there's Apple. I mean, I mean, honestly, you just made a really good point. Maybe the retail, the legal retail locations will be for the tourists because pre-COVID, I think we had 68 million tourists visit annually. That's a lot of tourists, 68 million through this whole city. So, you know, maybe the outer boroughs where they don't really go, um, like the Bronx, Staten Island or Queens, um, those dispensaries might have a harder time, but, um, but the Manhattan and Brooklyn dispensaries, I think might. And that's also, you gotta think about it. It's like really for foot traffic. I mean, how many people are gonna be relying on delivery? Like they normally do in New York City. Like everyone who smokes weed or anything in New York City usually has a delivery guy. They got their person that brings it. Like they're not walking down the street to some bodega. They already have an established you know, presence. So like it, if all these retail shops open up, even on the outskirts, like they could still supply different parts of Manhattan through delivery. Um, and so that's just another piece of the puzzle that I think needs to be figured out of how is, what's this landscape going to look like specifically in the city and how is delivery, foot traffic, illegal, legal, all going to work together or fight each other and what's going to end up in the, in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a, a new like pot deli that just opened up in my building actually, you know, looks like a regular deli, but it's not. Um, so I was just in there talking to the owners. Um, they said they have a really high demand for products that are made of magic mushrooms. It's the next big thing. Um, and it's, yeah, it's happening in a bunch of places around the country. But I was actually, when I was in the city about a month ago, seeing a friend, he had told me that he had um, he had a friend who just bought like ten bars of chocolate that were psilocybin infused, and when I and he showed me a photo of the package, and it was like these are like professionally manufactured chocolates. Um, so I don't know if they got them from like I think DC has decriminalized them, so maybe they have them there. I don't know where these are happening, but there's definitely an interest in it, and more so the microdosing element, not like what it used to be where you take a whole bunch and then you trip and hallucinate. Like people are looking at it as more medicinal and like managing anxiety and pain and, and quitting. I just read something about like quitting smoking. There's just some research out. Yeah, alcohol, PTSD. Yeah, it's the micro dosing that I'm hearing also. Who are these professional manufacturers and, and where are they? Because I, no, no, I haven't been able to get anyone willing to talk to me, of course. I wanted to see what the CPG products were out there, what consumer preferences, how they're formulating them. Is it, is it you know, are they having bioavailability problems like, you know, tinctures and things like that? So I, I wanted to get into the, dig into the product part of the mushrooms and who's consuming. And as a matter of fact, they're in British Columbia there are multiple mushroom-only dispensaries. That, that's a telltale sign. That's going to happen. Oh, yeah, I have no doubt. Yeah, so anyway. But Brad, thank you so much. I know it's, it's, you, you are busy and... Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. 
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.